I want to create positive workplaces, whether that's a virtual workplace, because I know we're going to the hybrid system now based on COVID, whether that's a virtual place, whether that's a physical place, I want to create positive work environments so that employees feel respected and recognized and so that companies can continue to pump out massive productivity in ways because it benefits all of us. Welcome, I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we talked to Roger Brown about how to find and follow your passion and about how he used his business skills to pursue his mission in education. First as the founder of Bright Horizons, and then as the president of Berklee College of Music, one of the premier music schools in the world. Our guest today is Jason Greer. Jason is an entrepreneur who specializes in labor relations. He is focused on creating positive work environments so that everybody can benefit. He is so good that he earned the nickname the Employee Whisperer. And Greer Consulting, the firm that he started, is now ranked in the top 5% consultancies in the labor relations field. Jason is also the author of Bias, Racism, and the Brain, a book that combines storytelling and neuroscience to explain and find solutions to the issues of racism. As I often do when I host authors, at the end of March, I will pick my favorite review on Apple Podcasts and send a free copy of the book to the person who wrote it. So get on Apple Podcasts and write a review. In this powerful episode, Jason talks about his leadership style, his history, and then he talks about how to bridge the tension between managers and employees with a lot of good practical advice and tips. We also have a very candid conversation about race and diversity in the workplace and why increasing diversity in the long run benefits everyone. Enjoy. Jason, it's great to have you here. To start out, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. So my name is Jason Greer, just to introduce me. I am the founder and president of Greer Consulting, Inc., which is a labor and employee relations consulting firm. We specialize in basically the breakdown that goes on between management and employees with a side specialization on diversity training and all kinds of different issues that are associated with that. And Jason, how did you go down this career path? What was the inspiration that made you enter the field of labor and management relations? Man, it's a great question. It's one of those things, you know, I always go back to that Michael Corleone statement. <laughs> Every time I try to get out, they pull me right back in. To be honest with you, you know, I was a social worker. I have a bachelor's degree in social work from Valparaiso University, a master's degree in social work from Washington University in St. Louis, and really thought that my life was going to be based around social service, helping people um, going from that avenue. Did that for a couple years, could barely pay the rent. So when I got my master's degree from the University of Illinois and in human resources management, became a board agent with the National Labor Relations Board. So I um, was a board agent, very proud to have served in Region 14 out of St. Louis, and really got the call to get into private practice in terms of being a consultant based on the overture that a consultant, who at the time was one of the top consultants in the country, made toward me. Went to go work for his company, and that was really my first experience being in the world of management seeing sort of the the tug and the pull that goes on between employees and managers and just how 
you know, for lack of a better term, just how sort of flimsy that relationship can be because you can have a great day with your employees from say nine to four. Then at four fifteen, you have to execute something that has come down from the C-suite. And then all of a sudden you see that relationship go from being very cordial to being very antagonistic. So that's when I realized, man, I really feel like I found my calling because through my social work experience, but also by nature of my personality, I'm able to get people to the point where they're able to talk through their issues and we're able to find a more effective and more peaceful outcome than where things initially like they were going. So that's really how I got my start in the business world. And, you know, it's been an incredible ride because I literally went from hoping that I was going to get one or two cases per year to now my company. We're in the top 5% of labor and employee relations consultants in the country. So it's been an awesome ride. You said something I really liked. You said, I realized I found my calling. So take me back to that moment. What was it like to realize you had found your calling? Great question. I would say, you know, it wasn't like this, you know, movie-inspired cosmic epiphany. I will say that it really came down to the fact that I legitimately could not imagine myself doing anything else. I couldn't imagine myself applying for a job, working for somebody. I couldn't imagine going into another industry. I literally found that, you know, because when I started, you know, in my career working for this uh, gentleman, his name was Mark Garrity, I was on the road 22 days a month. Basically, I was home long enough to change my clothes, maybe grab a hot shower and maybe catch up with some friends for maybe one or two nights. And then I was right back on the road for as much of a, a drag as it was being on the road. man, there was nothing else I wanted to do because I found my sweet spot legitimately 22 days a month hanging out with employees, hanging out with managers, listening to issues, listening concerns, and finding ways to bridge the two. Come on, man. It got no better for me. I love the fact that you started this conversation and saying what you loved about it by saying that you love bridging the two sides. And I know that in your experience, you have actually been on both sides. So I'm wondering, are there moments when you are talking to one side that you're helping consulting to one side that you draw on your experience from being on the other side? And, and what's the conversation like at that point? Oh, man, I love your questions first off. Thank you, Dana. I would say that being on the other side, so to speak, gave me a sense of empathy. So what I found is, look, when we talk about authentic leadership, you can't have authentic leadership without understanding vulnerability. And oftentimes, you know, we live in this world in which, you know, you go on social media and everybody has the, you know, hashtag never quit or hashtag never die. And I only sleep one to two hours a night because I'm just driven for success. It's how I'm hardwired. You know, all of these slogans, which sound great and I've lived by it and I have crashed by it because you can only go so long without sleep before you realize this is ridiculous, right? But I think one of the things that we're missing in the leadership conversation is that of vulnerability. And when you have vulnerability, then you can begin to sympathize with the plight that other people are going through. So if you're a manager, let's say if you're a manager making, let's say six figures, which is, it, it is what it is. You're making six figures, but you are managing somebody who makes seventeen fifty an hour. And this person's working two to three jobs just to make ends meet. If you don't understand vulnerability, then you're never going to understand the fact that this employee is showing up and she's giving you the best that she has. Maybe she's exhausted because not only is she working two to three jobs just to make ends meet, she also has kids at home that maybe she's taking care of by herself. 
So what I've been able to do, because I've been on that other side, especially from a social work perspective, as a board agent perspective, is I'm able to convey the sentiments, so to speak, of those employees to managers in a way that they get it. So it's great that you're able to do that in person while you're in that situation. But what techniques do you use to teach managers to incorporate the idea of vulnerability as an ongoing practice when they're dealing with their counterparts? Yeah, the first thing that I do is we do a lot of role play. And that role play starts with, hand me your phone. (laughs) What are you talking about? Hand me your phone. Hand me my phone. And I'm like, give me your phone. I'll take the phone, I'll turn it off, and I'll put it on the side of their desk or the cubicle, whatever the case might be. I said, rule number one, we eliminate distractions. So when we're talking to our employees, they know that we're fully present and our time is manifest with them. The second thing that I do is that we do a lot of mirroring exercises. And when I say mirroring exercises, we're talking about mirroring nonverbals. So if your employee comes in and they're slouched over, I want you to slouch over because I want you to mirror how they're showing up. And then when they kind of realize that you're slouched over and they're looking at you and they're making eye contact with you, maintain that eye contact, but don't maintain that eye contact in a threatening way. Maintain that eye contact in a way that conveys, I see you. Then as that person starts to open up, then you start to open up with your nonverbals because your nonverbals are clearly demonstrating to their brain, I'm here with you. And then when they realize that you're present in that space, there are no distractions, that's when those conversations start to take place. We work a lot with open-ended questions, expressions. And when I say expressions, it's not, you know, if an employee tells you that they're struggling today, it's not, well, just get back to work. It's, okay, I hear that you're struggling. Tell me more about that. And when you ask a question that in that way, what you're saying to that employee is, I want to hear you. And that's when that conversation starts to open up. Something else that we work really hard toward is making sure that people feel respected, making sure that people feel recognized. The motto of my company is that people will work for money, but they'll die for respect and they'll die for recognition. But do you know how you want to be respected might be different than how I want to be respected. And how you want to be recognized might be completely different than how I want to be recognized. But the core of it is getting to know that person and getting to know that person's story enough so that you can go about respecting and recognizing them in a manner in which it really fits for them. You know, as I listen to you talk, I'm getting a pretty good sense of your values and how you want to lead and work with people. And I am wondering if there is a specific moment when you started realizing the type of leader that you wanted to be. And also, I would love you to tell me what type of leader would you like to be? Yeah, great question. Um, I will tell you that in terms of deciding the type of leader I wanted to be, it really came from a moment of pain. I'm a big comic book fan, so I'm, I'm big in the origin story. But for me, it was a moment of pain. I worked for this, she was the director of this not-for-profit, and she had recruited me. This is prior to my going back to school to the University of Illinois. And I was excited because she was very well regarded within the world of social service. And I felt like this is a feather in my cap in terms of what this is going to do for my resume. And Dino, it absolutely positively sucked. She treated me like hot garbage. I mean, it was it was the worst. Honestly, this was the worst professional experience I could have ever imagined, right? Could have ever experienced. And it was so bad, but it was during those moments in which she belittled me in meetings. She made me feel like I was the token, you know, everything. And I was only there because I needed, you know, she needed to add a man onto her staff. She made me feel so small. I just remember thinking to myself, 
everything she's doing to me is every, I want to do the reverse of what this is. So if I'm ever in a position where I'm managing people, I don't care if it's one person, a hundred people, a thousand people, I don't want anybody to ever feel like this. And more importantly, if I ever belittle somebody unintentionally, I want to be the type of leader that when they come to me, because they know they can come to me and talk to me, when they come to me and they let me know how I made them feel, I want to be present enough to be able to say, man, I got that wrong and I do apologize. Going forward, I'm going to do better. So that was the moment that I realized that I did not, I wanted to be the anti this person. I'm not giving her name because I'm not going to disrespect her, but I wanted to be the anti this person in terms of the type of leader I want to show up as. The type of leader that I am today, I'm very, I'm highly collaborative. You know, we have engagements going on throughout the country. We are moving fast. We're moving quick and with some very big stakes in hand in terms of the expectations that our clients have of us. But I don't care if I'm leading a group of three people or a group of 30 people in terms of my consultants. One of the things that I go about doing is I make sure that I spend time with them one-on-one, even if it's five minutes. What And I'm asking critical questions. What do you need from me? Here's the end goal. Here's the end goal of this experience. What do you need from me in order to get you to that end goal? What can I do to make things better for you? But more importantly, what can I do to let you know that I'm here for you? These are the conversations that I'm having with them because I want to make sure beyond a shadow of a doubt, not only are they executing at a higher level, they're executing because they feel comfortable because they know that they have a leader who's looking out for them. I love this concept, you know, the idea that if you actually take the time to show your employees that you care and that you're putting them in the best possible position to succeed, ultimately you will also have the best results. I want to go to another side of growing a business. When a business is growing fast, sometimes you end up into situations where you may have something in front of you that's really good for the short term but that in the long run either damages the business or is in conflict with your core values and how you want to run the business. And I'm wondering if you would be comfortable sharing a situation where you were forced to make a choice like that and how you navigated it. Absolutely, Dino. Um, Great question. I will tell you about a time where I gave in to the um, short term. And I will tell you about a time in which I gave into the long term. When I gave into the short term, it was basically a situation where I had this client, difficult client, and they offered me a lot of money to do something for them that was legal, but it wasn't in congruence with what I believed and what I felt. But I still did it because we're maybe four years into the business and capital was not nearly as accessible as it is today. And I gave into the situation, did the work for them. And hated myself through the entire process. And not only did I have to fight them to get the money that they promised me, but I basically, in a lot of ways, uh, made a fool of myself publicly because I was effectively put in a position where I was falling on the sword for them for actions that they committed that I had told them behind closed doors not to do. I remember thinking to myself, I will never go through this again. Fast forward five years later, we're in a similar situation where a client made me an offer, very handsome financial benefit that they're going to give me if I was willing to do a set of actions that, again, I disagreed with. This time, remembering how bad that last experience was and the fact that, Dina, when all is said and done, you know, money is what it is, corporate standing is what it is, 
business reputation is what it is, but you still have to sleep at night, right? And when I recognized that there was absolutely no way that I could live with myself if I did this, I chose to go with what I believed as opposed to what that client wanted. Now, I lost the client, but really, what did I lose, Dino? I serve in the type of industry in which you have probably about 90% of the businesses that I've come across have been upstanding and just been full of good people. Maybe 10% of those businesses that I've seen are full of people that I wouldn't trust to babysit my pet rock if I had a pet rock, right? (laughs) I want to live in the type of world and the type of business world, and more importantly, internally, where I'm doing business for people who I know I believe in, as opposed to people that I just can't trust. How do you pass this mindset to your team and how do you coach them on how to make their right decision according to their right values? Oh, great question. A lot of it has to do with conversation. There's some testing that goes on and it's very subtle testing. So I'm not talking about like written form testing or online surveys, but really comes down to conversations where my consultant, the consultants I have about, have about maybe 20, at this point, about 29 consultants who work for me. That number can swell up to 50 consultants. It swells down to about, rarely goes beyond 29, depending on the engagements that are going on at that given time. Conversations around where they've been, how they've handled situations, model for me. And I just had a conversation with a consultant yesterday where I'm like, model for me, this is what I experienced with this client. How would you have handled it? And I want to hear what they're saying. But a lot of it, too, comes down to we spend a lot of time together when we're on the road. You know, I'm on the road about 200 days out of the year. And a lot of that time is spent in boardrooms. It's spent on shop floors. It's spent being in front of employees. Or it's in our fictitious war room is what we call it, where the consultants are sitting around basically coming up with ideas and strategies for the client. But that's also where we're doing a lot of conversations. What I look for in terms of my consultants are very simple. Experience, personality, ethics. I want to make sure that if you are in, let's say, Galveston, Texas, and you are faced with some type of crisis, that you're going to handle it in a manner in which I would handle it. Or more importantly, show me something. Show me something I've never seen before. But if you're going to do it, do it with the highest level of ethics, do it with the highest level of integrity, but also do it with a high level of intelligence as well. Your team must love working with you. I love my team. They're fun. Yeah. And I can definitely tell that you actually genuinely care for them. But I want to go back to something that you said a little while ago. You said you can have success, you can have status, you can have money, but ultimately you need to be able to sleep with yourself. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to share what was your definition of success when you started out and how has that changed now? Man, I love these questions, Dino. Um, My level of success for when I started back in 2005 was, man, if I can pay my mortgage three months in a row, then I'm doing well. (laughs) I'm just being honest with you. That was my level of success. The goal was, and the hope was one day I was going to be able to make $160,000. And I'm saying that because I can see the vision board that I created for myself in 2005. I was like, you know, I had a piece of 8 by 11 piece of paper. And I remember cutting out what was a check. And, you know, I hand wrote the check, colored it and everything, put up on this vision board and the check said $160,000 because that was going to be my measure of success. Paying my mortgage three months in a row with no issues and having a $160,000 check. Fast forward to 2022, and I would say that my version of success is well beyond the $160,000, but also 
it's this feeling that I'm doing something good. It's almost cliche to say that where they say, if you're doing something you love, then it never feels like work. I would say that in my case, it's actually true. You know, I'm known as the employee whisperer in my industry, and I didn't give myself that nickname. It was a client of mine who gave, gave me that nickname, and it just sort of caught on like wildfire. So that's what people call me is the employee whisperer. So I'm brought in these situations in which the house is literally burning down. Employees are in an uproar. Management's in an uproar. Things are going nuts. You know, the company's trying to do all these online surveys, but people don't trust the surveys. And you have all these folks in the C-suite who are legitimately pulling their hairs out because they have no idea how to stem the issues. That's where I come in. That's where my consultants come in. And over the course of time, we will effectively boil down what are the core issues. But more importantly, we will help to come up with recommendations that are driven 100% based on the feedback that we're getting from the people who are doing the work every single day. I'm only bringing that up, Dino, because I'm legitimately living my mission every single day. So my version of success went from just wanting to pay my mortgage and have $160,000 to the money is great. But the feeling of pride, the feeling of satisfaction because I feel like I'm serving something bigger than myself, that today is my definition of success. Well, I'm glad you said that because, you know, I've only known you about half an hour, 25 minutes. And it's very clear to me that a lot of what is driving you is the idea of fulfilling a mission. So what is your mission? Oh, man, I have a couple missions, right? <laughs> so there's a couple of different buckets, my brother. One of those missions is... I want to create positive workplaces, whether that's a virtual workplace, because I know we're going to the hybrid system now based on COVID, whether that's a virtual place, whether that's a physical place, I want to create positive work environments so that employees feel respected and recognized and so that companies can continue to pump out massive productivity in ways because it benefits all of us, right? I would say the second bucket for me is I want to eradicate racism in our lifetime. I was a victim in 1991. My father was a, a grade school principal. My father was a grade school principal. My mother was a nurse, born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. And my father was hired on position as a principal at a grade school in Dubuque, Iowa. We had no idea that our family, because my mother and I would eventually move there in 1992 because my parents weren't going to take me out of my senior year in high school. And I'm dating myself. I'm 48 years old. Um, but I was 17 years old in 1991. And so we moved my father to Dubuque, accepted the job. And we didn't know that our family was the first family to come to Dubuque under the constructive integration plan, whereby they were going to recruit over 100 Black families into Dubuque over the course of 10 years. So, you know, you're basically talking about forced integration. And then as a result of forced integration, there were people within the city who felt like these Black folks, meaning us, were going to come and take their jobs, going to do all the things that they had heard Black people from the stereotypes that are associated with Black people were going to do to their community. So the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, came in. They organized a um, group called the National Association for the Advancement of White People. And they started to burn crosses literally in protest of my father accepting that position at Irving Elementary School in Dubuque, Iowa. And then they decided to personalize it by burning additional crosses in protest of my mother and myself. And so you go through that kind of thing, Dino, at 17 years old, where I'm still trying to figure out who I'm taking to homecoming, let alone dealing with the fact that there is a group of people who don't know me, don't know my father, 
but they are hell-bent on making sure that we don't move into their community. When the reality is my father only came to that community because he wanted to educate kids. He didn't care they were white. He didn't care they were black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever the case might be. He just had a love for educating kids. And so that has really fueled me. I'm 48 years old, just as I stated. You know, that has really fueled me in terms of wanting to create the type of life and the type of environment in which people don't have to go through the same things that I went through, the things that my father and my mother went through and their parents and so on. So I have a couple missions. Wow. First of all, I am so sorry that you and your family had to go through this. Second, I want to thank you for sharing this really powerful story because we are talking about crosses being burned in people's lawns in 1991, which coincidentally is when I moved to the U.S. from Italy. And that is only 30 years ago. And I don't know that people realize or want to acknowledge that this was still going on at the time and may even be going on right now. So I actually... Underneath the larger umbrella of managing employer and employee relationships, I know that your firm also does DEI work. And I also know that you recently wrote a book about it. So I'm thinking that maybe a good way to get into this topic, it would be for you to tell us a little bit about your book. Absolutely. So thank you for asking that question, Dino. So I wrote a book, co-authored a book with my best friend, Phil Dixon. And Phil is one of the international leader on the neuroscience of leadership. Basically, how the brain impacts the way that you go about leading. So when the George Floyd moment happened, and let's be real, it, George Floyd moment might've happened in, what was it, 2020? I think it was 2020. It was that type of moment that sort of resonated around the world because you saw all of these mass protests of people screaming Black Lives Matter and all the debates that were going on, conversations around race that were happening at a high and a low level. I say a high level when you have people who are engaging in sort of peaceful conversations on what this looks like. I say a low level where you had cities that were literally burning. I remember calling Phil and saying, I want to do something. You know, we talk about diversity all the time. We do all these diversity programs for these corporations. But what if we created something by which people could tap into my stories, coupled with your brain-based leadership skills, and we create the type of book that would really take people into their own stories? Because, Daniel, just as you said, just as you lead into this question, there are a lot of people who are really under the mistaken notion that racism is not nearly as bad today as what it was 50, 60 years ago. Because when you look at television, you see LeBron James on television. We've had an African-American president, Barack Obama. There's a feeling that things have gotten better. And don't get me wrong, things have gotten better. But that's sort of relative. Better based on what? So we created this book called Bias, Racism, and the Brain, where we are literally taking you through my stories. But we're not taking you through those stories from the perspective of shaming people because there's no shame in this. We're taking people through the stories because what we found through our brain is that the only way, Dino, that I'm ever going to understand you and say your perspective coming from Italy in 1991 is by understanding your stories by hearing you. Because the more that I hear your story, the more my brain changes to the point, look, Dino, we didn't know each other prior to, what, 10 a.m. Central Time? And here we are, it's going on 44 minutes, and we're having this conversation. What we found is that our brains typically divide people into one of two 
dates. If you remember my in-group, which means that you look like me, talk like me, think like me, act like me, therefore you're me, I feel good. There's this dopamine effect that goes on within your body that your brain releases that says when you're in the company of people who are in your in-group, I feel good being around you, so I want to be around you more. Now, on the other side of that, if you are a member of my out-group, which means you don't look like me, you don't talk like me, don't think like me, therefore you're not me. The cortisol effect kicks in. The cortisol effect is nothing more than the stress hormone. So when you get around people who look like you, your brain kicks into the reward state. That dopamine kicks in and I want to be around you. But if you're around people who don't look like you and they're members of your outgroup, the cortisol effect kicks in, which puts you into the threat state, which means I want to run from you. The challenge that we have, in, not only in this country, but throughout the world, is the fact that technology has brought us to the point where we're having this conversation, Dino. I'm in St. Louis. And Dino, where are you based? I am in Boston. You're in Boston. So I'm in St. Louis. You're in Boston. We're having this conversation virtually. It's awesome. You're going to publish this podcast. It's awesome. Technology has increased to the point where we are about as connected as we've ever been before. But our brain has not evolved. So our brains still think that we're baked, you know, back in the day of our ancestors, still scouring the environment for food, water, and shelter. So we're coming across people who are not like us. And since that threat state kicks in, as opposed to taking the time to getting to know people, we want to run from people or we want to create assumptions about people that we ultimately create, which are biases. And we think, so many of us think that we're not racist, but we are. So many of us think we're not sexist, but we are. So many of us think we're not homophobic, but we are. Because the confirmation bias says, well, I can't be racist because I have a black friend, right? I mean, how many times have we heard situations where somebody gets caught saying something racist and the first thing they say is, I'm not racist? Well, you are racist. Admit that you're racist, but oftentimes we can't admit that we're racist until a lens is put in front of us, our mirror is put in front of us where we actually see who we are. So in terms of the whole diversity, you know, the DEI perspective that we bring from Bias Racism in the Brain book, as well as the trainings that we're doing, it's all about helping people to tap into their stories. So part of your diversity training right now with corporations also employs this notions of tapping into the brain and tapping into stories? Absolutely. So if a company wanted to put into place a DEI program that has real results and teeth, you know, and is moving from, from the right place, if you will, is not just something that they do because they need to meet a legal minimum or some for PR reasons, where should they start? What are like the most important elements for it? Yeah, great questions, Dino. I would say the first thing is be honest. Be honest about why you want to do this. The second thing is to be honest about how we're going to do this. And I would say the third step is do it. Look, what bothers me the most about the corporate actions toward diversity as well as the social actions toward diversity is that we're just not honest about why diversity matters, right? Everything is so built into the theoretical. So I'll give you an example. When I am doing a employee relations engagement, I generally get contacted by the corporate in-house attorney or the chief human resources officer, whatever the case might be. So from the time they contact me to the time that we actually get boots on the ground in terms of being there to do the engagement, you're talking about maybe four to five days. Quick action time. But when a company contacts me and they want to do diversity training or diversity consulting, I generally know that it's going to take about maybe four to five months before I actually get in to do it. And here's why. 
because there are all these stakeholders that all of a sudden get involved and those stakeholders oftentimes with all due respect happen to be white males are so scared and it's like you have to vent through them what is going to be discussed and you recognize very early on that as they're vetting you what they're vetting is really are you going to make me feel bad about being white or are you going to make me feel like I'm part of the conversation because this whole conversation around race is so difficult, right? That's where I come back when you ask the question about what steps can be taken. It's let's be honest about why we're going to do this, but let's be honest about the fact that the demographics of the world, not just America, the world, because we're in a global economy, the demographics of the world suggest that the more knowledge that we have about how other groups of people think how other groups of people act and the expectations that other groups of people have about how we show up as a company really do matter. And if we're not honest about that, yeah, you might turn a good profit in 2022, but what's going to happen when it's 2042, 20 years have gone by and the world's demographics have changed even more and you've done nothing internally to prepare for that. I want to address specifically the lack of diversity in the upper floors, if you will, in the big leadership positions. And one of the excuses that get used is the supposed lack of qualified candidates. But I think a different way to think about this is actually the lack of opportunities for people to actually go through the steps that get them at the door of those top-level jobs. And so what are some of the changes that companies can make to actually start generating a broader pipeline, a broader number of opportunities for people from the beginning of their career? Yeah, great question. I would say one would be mentorship. I hear this all the time where um, executives will reach out to me because they're looking for, and it's interesting when executives say this, they always say, I'm looking for qualified minority candidates for these executive level positions. But when they reach out to me, when they're looking for executives, Right. This, so this is some of the coded language when they're just looking for a potential, like, you know, a potential candidate for an executive role. I can generally tell when they're indicating somebody white versus somebody who happens to be a minority, because when it's somebody white, they're just looking for an executive, a person with executive level experience for the role. But when they're looking for minority, it's generally I'm looking for somebody who's qualified. So let's get away from the coded language and just kind of call it what it is. Right. When mentorship is so critically important because there's mentoring that's happening on any given day, whether that person's actually a formal mentor in terms of having a mentorship program or it's an informal mentor because you just happen to see a mentee who reminds you of yourself. It's sort of the halo effect. You remind, you see somebody who reminds you of yourself and you just groom them to become you. So what I would say for organizations is create a formal mentoring program where you're pairing minorities and that's not just racial minorities that's that just kind of cuts across the whole diversity landscape with senior executives and you're grooming them for potential positions within the organization at an executive level i'd say the other thing is extend your pipeline because there are tons of folks who are coming out of colleges universities around the country who have who are skilled who are ready to go who are hungry they just need an opportunity. Now, understand they're not going to look like you. They might not even act like you, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to bring something credible to the table. 
Um, I would say the other thing that's really critically important is to take a look at the C-suite and to recognize that for as much as you want to believe that all of you in the C-suite got there because you were just really good at what you do, recognize that you got there, many of you got there because you knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. Don't apply the whole term of you have to earn your way when you're looking at ethnic minority or you're looking at somebody who fits within coming from a minority demographic. And then all of a sudden say to the person who looks like you, well, you got to earn your way, but also hey, make sure you join the country club next week because I want to sit down and talk to you because that'd get a great opportunity for you to network with people. So what I'm saying is the same opportunities that you give people who look like you, give those opportunities to people who don't look like you because that's the only way that we're ever going to diversify the C-suite. Yeah, this is actually a great point. And it's interesting, like, finally, this is something I started to think about a couple of years ago. Uh, there was a panel on television between minority coaches in the NFL about, you know, how do you create opportunities for a minority to become head coaches? And there's a little known role in the coaching staff, which is the goal for an assistant head coach. And generally, this is somebody who is starting out in the business. But it's also a role where you learn a lot because you basically follow all the interactions between the head coach and all the coordinators. You're exposed to all the different facets on how you run a team. And so it's a great role early on in your career to get ready then in the long run to become a coordinator or a head coach. And what they were talking about in this panel is the fact that all these jobs of, you know, assistant to the head coach generally go to children of other coaches. Like, you know, there's a head coach, their son wants to try coaching the NFL and they'll call one of their friends, one of their buddies. And, they will get the job. And the panel was talking about the fact that, you know, the NFL should create formal programs so that these roles are also the opportunities are also given to young minority members, you know, who may deserve them. And so I'm wondering what's been your experience in creating this type of programs within corporate America? Yeah. So I'm glad you brought up, let me say this. So yes, I have tried and we're still trying to get organizations to be more open to the idea of, because what we're really talking about is breaking down cronyism, right? Yeah. Is breaking down cronyism to the point where, and I'm not saying completely break it down. I'm just saying, instead of, you know, if you have five open positions, instead of filling those five positions with friends of yours, right? Or the sons and daughters of friends of yours, at least leave one position open for somebody who might come from a different a different perspective or, you know, a different upbringing or a different path than you. We're just talking about one. You know, it's funny because when we talk about the NFL and you brought it up, over 70% of NFL players are African-American, right? Think about that. Over 70 to 75% of NFL players are African-American. Yet when you look at the coaching ranks, the coaching ranks are the complete opposite. You're talking about close to 90%, if not 99.9% of all head coaching positions are white, with the exception of Mike Thomason over in uh, Pittsburgh. But when you look at the owner's box, the owner's box yeah. are made up of all white men. Now, I need to say this to your listeners. This is not me bashing white men. It's not by any stretch of the imagination. All that I'm saying is, is that there's room at the top for other people. Yeah. One thing that struck me last year or a couple of years ago, the Washington Redskins named the first black president of a football club. And in order to get to that role, 
he had to play professional football for seven years. And then once he left football, he went to McKinsey and became a partner there. So that's the bar right now for a black person to become a president of an NFL club. But I just want to go back for a second to the original question that I asked you about trying to build this type of mentorship programs in corporate America and what has worked, if anything, and what's been your experience? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to answer your question initially. So we have attempted on several occasions to create that type of pipeline. And I will say that it has failed miserably in every single occasion. Because especially when the George Floyd moment happened, and, and Dino, you remember this, when the George Floyd moment happened, all of a sudden it was like America discovered that racism still exists. And as a result of America realizing that racism still exists, then there were all these corporations that had these open arms toward the idea of creating more diverse workplaces, which was awesome. I mean, gosh, I remember talking to my wife about, finally, I hate that this happened to George Floyd. I hate the impact that this is having on his family. But if his death resulted in the opportunity for us to diversify across the board, especially in industries, especially in the boardroom, especially in churches, and having these conversations that were not happening prior to the George Floyd moment happen, then he truly was a martyr. And so for a month and a half, I found that all these organizations were open to the idea of our ideas. So we're talking in terms of creating these pipelines to historical black colleges and universities. We have these pipelines to all of these underrepresented minority groups. And please let me make this point. When I talk about historically underrepresented groups, I'm not just talking from a racial dynamic. I'm talking about members of the LGBTQ plus community. I'm talking about people just across the board. And we started these initiatives and Dino then all of a sudden, life kind of went back to normal for people, or as normal as life could go back within the world of COVID. And when organizations started to get pushback, especially from, let's be real, from some conservative groups who were not as open to the idea of what this meant for them, I started to notice that organizations started to constrict those opportunities. And it went from, yes, we're fully on board to, well, let's sit back for about six months and just see how this plays out. And unfortunately, you know, taking the time to sit back for six months ultimately ended up with, we're just not going to move forward with it. Yeah. And I think, you know, one interesting observation is that a reaction that a lot of companies have had in the past couple of years is to create a special diversity arm within the company and they choose a diversity candidate to be the chief diversity officer. But in some ways that becomes almost like a sub part of the overall culture and almost like a glass ceiling. And maybe in order to get real change, we need to have more diversity at the chief people officer level. So what do you think it's going to take for more diverse candidates to actually make that next step to become chief people officers? Yeah, great question. I think it's twofold. One is going to be, you know, the same thing I was saying about the senior executives has to apply to the chief people officer is that there are a number of qualified HR folks out there who happen to be members of underrepresented groups of people who would make wonderful chiros, who would make wonderful chief people officers, but you got to be open to that. I'd say the second thing is, and I learned this from a client of mine, and I'm not going to give her name, but she is a chief human resources officer. And I think she plans on working maybe about another five years 
but she has hand-selected her potential replacement when she retires. And she made a point of making sure that the person that she hand-selected was a member of a minority group. And she has gone out of her way. It's sort of that sink or swim principle. She's gone out of her way to put this person in multiple positions so that they learn. But it's also a test to make sure, you know, I might be selecting you, but I also want to make sure that you are the right fit for this role in the future. And I think it really comes down to a decision that says, if we're going to diversify, that diversification has to start with me. And when you make that decision, because it's good for business, not just good for your ego, but it's good for business because the demographics of our population are changing. And we want to make sure that as the demographic of our population change, that the executive suite looks like those changing demographics. So it comes down to a choice. And she's made the choice to groom her successor, who happens to be a minority. And it's been a really good fit so far. Well, that's a great spot to stop the professional portion of our conversation. Hopefully, it will give some inspiration to other C-level executives as they think about their successors and think about how they can bring more diversity to the C-suite. I want to switch to the personal, and I want to ask you, do you have a hobby or a passion that is really important to you, and how has that impacted your professional life? I have a couple hobbies. One, I am a diehard comic book fan. When I say I'm a diehard, so my father has a PhD in educational psychology, And I was basically his guinea pig (laughs) at a young age where he wanted to teach. An aspect of his dissertation was proving that you could teach children how to read through creative means. And his way of teaching me how to read, and I think like age three, was through a comic book, The Incredible Hulk. I don't remember what issue. So I've kind of grown up with this idea because I have over 12,000 comic books to my name. And it's really informed my belief that there really is a good guy. Right. There really is a good person. There's a hero. There's a shero. Right. And there are forces of evil at work. But it's the responsibility of the shero to show up to do her job in such a way that she not only eradicates evil, but she makes life better for other folks. And that really informs how I go about my life. Because if I'm ever going to be deemed as a hero, one day I would love to be considered a hero, at least to somebody. I want to make sure that how they look at me, how they look at my feats, how they look at the things I've accomplished, that I've accomplished more good than I have bad. I'm an avid weightlifter and I spend a ton of time with my wife, which is awesome. And really comic books and weightlifting are my passion. That is great. I am actually a huge comic book fan myself. All right. So favorite question of the podcast, I call it the bullshit detector. There are expressions in business, there's business jargon in every era that after a while lose that meaning. So which one is the expression that drives you crazy right now? Gosh, I hate the term synergy. I hate the term synergy with a passion because I'm like, what exactly does that mean? (laughs) I, I hate synergy and I hate um. And when I say I hate um, it's always when somebody wants to give bad news or they're trying to phrase it in such a way. And I say this to my consultants all the time. If you're speaking to a client and you have to give them bad news, don't start out with, um, I'd like to talk to you. No, just cut to the chase and get there. I think that in in corporate America, we spend so much time trying to make sure that what we say comes across the right way, as opposed to saying what really needs to be said. That's great. Thank you so much. And I will share with you that Slowly but surely, synergy has become the most unpopular word in my podcast. I think you're the third person who brings it up, which is kind of funny. 
Final question. It is the food for the soul or food for the body. You can give me either a recipe or, or a drink that really inspires you or a piece of art, a book, a movie, a piece of music, a play, a TV show, something that inspires you and that you love. Gosh, I would say that the two inspirations, I'm a big movie buff. I should have said that. I'm a huge movie buff. I would say that the movies that inspire me are all things Star Wars. The movie that has inspired me beyond Star Wars is Black Panther. Watching um, Chadwick Boseman, rest in heaven, rest in power. Um, I call him King Boseman because he was our king. Watching the grace and the dignity in which he played that role and the idea that there could be this golden city called Wakanda where people who look like me are geniuses, are wealthy, and are prospering with their families and their loved ones with a sense of history, interconnected history, inspires me beyond belief. But Jason, as a big Marvel fan, I think this is a great note to close on. And speaking of inspiration, I want to thank you for being on the podcast because I think that you are going to inspire a lot of our listeners. This has been an incredibly, incredibly thoughtful and deep conversation. And, and I just want to say a huge thank you for being on. I, I really, really enjoyed meeting you and learning from you. And yeah. Thanks for having me, Dino. You're awesome. You're truly awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend who may enjoy it that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it in social media. Every little bit of help counts. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so that you don't miss any episode. If you're listening on a platform that allows reviews, go to your platform and give us a five-star rating and a positive review. And speaking of reviews, at the end of March, I will give out a copy of Jason Greer's book, to my favorite review on Apple Podcasts. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, go and leave a rating and write a great review. Now, if you want to find Jason, you can find him on the web at HireGCI.com, which is spelled H-I-R-E-G-C-I.com. On Twitter, he is at Labor Diversity. And then you can also find him on LinkedIn, LinkedIn.com backslash in backslash Jason J. Greer and Greer is spelled G-R-E-E-R. -E and if you're interested in Jason's book, Bias, Racism and the Brain, you can find it on all major book selling platforms. I highly recommend it. As usual, stick around because at the end of the credits, I'm going to share a song by one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters, Susan Cattaneo. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four. And you can also email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp. And on Facebook, look for the podcast Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. As promised, here is a song by Susan Cattaneo, 
It's her brand new single that was released last Friday. It's called Time and Love and Gravity. Enjoy it. And if you really like it, get on SusanOnBandCamp.com and pre-order her new album that's coming out on April 8th. Thank you.